Okay, this is Jeffrey Harris, and this is the 411 Wrestling Interviews Podcast. Today, I am speaking with a living legend. He is a champion of the UFC. He is a UFC Hall of Famer. He is a champion of the NWA, a former NWA World Champion, a former WWE Intercontinental Champion, Tag Team Champion. He is a living legend in every sense of the word. Ken Shamrock, Ken Thank you so much for talking with me today. This is amazing to get to speak with you. Uh, I really appreciate it, man. So thanks for your time. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. All right. Uh, man, this is fantastic. All right. So uh, I actually I got to briefly chat with you at StarCast 2 last May in Las Vegas. Uh, how did you like getting to attend uh, that StarCast event, and how do you think uh, they did? Well, I thought it was amazing. Um uh, the interaction with the fans is always great. Um, you know, getting to see a lot of the guys uh, that I that I had actually wrestled with, also competed against uh, while they were, uh, you know, WCW was still still going strong. You know, Kevin Nash got all. I just seen a lot of different guys during that generation that uh, that I was a part of. Uh, it's fun to be able to go and want meet with fans, but to get to uh, mingle with some of the guys uh, during those times when we were all. Uh, having so much fun uh, wrestling and the exciting time of pro wrestling was was uh, very very good to all of us. Now, are you attending Starcast three in uh, Chicago next month? In a few weeks? I'm not. I am not sure. I, I haven't heard anything on that. Um, we'll wait and see what happens with that. But uh, again, I'm always open to um, meeting my fans and going out there and being able to at least have conversations with them and hear different stories. It's a fun thing for me. Now, there's a lot of waves being made in pro wrestling right now because, you know, th that same weekend of StarCast, they held the first All Elite Wrestling event in Las Vegas, and in StarCast 3, they're holding uh, the next one, All Out. Uh, what are you hearing about All Out, and does it excite you as a fan at all? Well, it does excite me in the fact that for so long I thought that uh, – the WWF had a stranglehold on wrestlers, and, and it's very difficult. And not to say is what uh, WWF was doing was wrong. I mean, it's, it's straight-up business, right? When you've got a, a stronghold on a business, uh, you clamp a hold on it, and, and you try to make and do the best you can for your company. And so they made moves and did things uh, that they normally wouldn't be able to do because uh, there was no other competition for fighters to say or wrestlers to say, well, I'll just go over here and I'll work for them. Uh, they had to take what was given to them and they had to work under conditions that some of them probably didn't want to work under. But because there was nowhere else to go, that's just the way it was. And so now we're getting to see um, uh, multiple organizations uh, I'm a part of one um, over in Australia, uh, Battle Championship Wrestling, which is, uh, you know, uh, doing very well. And I get to be a part of that and have some fun with it. You've got AEW that's coming out that looks like it's challenging uh, for uh, a lot of that market shares where the WWF is in that space. Uh, and then, of course, you've got Impact Wrestling, I think, that is just now starting uh, to put all the pieces in place and make their move. Um, so there's a lot of things happening in pro wrestling right now, and it's an exciting time for wrestlers to look back and go, okay, uh, now it's the, the, the playing field's even now because now the, the companies can negotiate 
uh, their best deal, and the and the wrestlers can now negotiate the deals that they want and not have to take what's given to them. Uh, now, also, Ken, what do you what is it like to look back at your heyday uh, when you had your run in the WWE, then the WWF? Uh, was the Attitude Era? It was the Monday Night Wars. It was WCW versus WWF going head to head every week. It, it felt like anything could happen every week, and uh, you were a big part of that uh, at that time. So, what is it like for you to look back on that? Was it was it is it crazy to look back on what was going on with the product back then? It was. It was fun to watch because um, you know anytime that you have organizations competing against one another. It's fun for the fans because they get to watch competition happen between two different organizations. They get to watch different characters in different organizations to see who's doing better. And it made everyone, I mean, including everyone from the top to the bottom, whether it was in the office or in the ring, from top to bottom, have to be on their A game in order to try to compete and stay ahead. And I think that's why during that attitude there, it was so exciting and so fun was because everybody was pushed to their limits to compete at a high level. Because if they didn't, then they did not look very good and they wouldn't be around very long because they had another company or another organization ready to swallow them up if they made a mistake. Now, Ken, when you came onto the scene in the WWE, speaking of A-game, I think you brought your A-game all the way because... You, you had a martial arts, uh, MMA background, you know, submission grappling, shoot fighting, no holds barred, but you seem to adjust to pro wrestling very easily, and you look like a natural. Sometimes you'll see MMA fighters making the transition, and they'll do a very good job, like a Ronda Rousey or a Matt Riddle, but other times they seem to have a rough go of it. Who would you credit to sort of you, you having a, a very natural and very quick transition into the business where it looked really seamless and effortless for you well i think it was uh just being able to have an ear and a person to be able to talk to and for me i had a lot of guys there that uh i was friends with and being able to uh just kind of talk different things out i know being around steve blackman and and billy gunn and road dog and I mean, there was just so many different guys that I was around. But I would say the one guy when I first started out and went back into pro wrestling and I got to talk with Bret Hart and, and his psychology that he laid out for me was just not to try to be something I'm not. They brought me in because I am who I am. And he said, they, they, you're keeping your same name. You're the world's most dangerous man. When you get into that pro wrestling ring, that's who you are. Do everything you do in fighting, but do it in the pro wrestling ring. And I thought to myself, well, wow, that's genius. It's like, I don't have to change. I got my same character. This is who I am. And so having that person there to say, listen, just be you, that's why they brought you here. And so for me to be able to go in there and have it against Vader, because uh, me and Vader beat the crap out of one another. And it was, a, and, but I, I literally thought that's, that's how it was supposed to be uh, when I had that match. And, and I thought, okay, well, it's, it's kind of like sparring, right? Where you're not trying to knock anybody out, but you're hitting them and making sure they know you're there. And so when I had the match with Vader, I thought it was a great match. And I remember going back to the locker room and people were looking at one another saying, man, uh, are you okay? Uh, and then asking Vader, dude, are you okay? And I thought to myself, I go, what are they talking about? And they literally thought when me and Vader were in the ring that we, we went after one another. And I laughed and I was like, what are they talking about? 
And they thought for real when he hit me and did all those things that Vader was trying to hurt me or I was trying to hurt Vader. And I thought to myself, well, I guess we did well because <laughs> they believed it. <laughs> and also right after you came in, they had you serve as the referee for that iconic match between Bret Hart and Stone Cold Steve Austin at WrestleMania 13, which to this day is, is viewed as one of the best WrestleMania matches ever. How did you like getting to be a part of that of that feud to kind of sort of usher you in to the promotion? Well, it was awesome because, you know, when you get a guy like um, Stone Cold who was on his way up, Bret Hart, who has always been a tremendous hand and, and has always been able to just, I mean, he's, he's always been a tremendous wrestler. Uh, one of the best, in my opinion, in the business ever. And uh, so I thought to myself, being able to get in with these two guys um, and be able to uh, kind of like just be me. But I remember going into this first match with when Brad and Stone were having their match, and I'm thinking to myself, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know because I'm in this, this in world of realism and this world of fighting. How do I pretend that guys are getting hurt? How do I? How do I manage this? I didn't know how I was going to do it, right? And I remember when the match started, and I was nervous, trying to make sure that I did a good job because I knew these guys were going to do a good job. And I remember five minutes into the match, I literally forgot what was happening and just thought to myself that they, these guys were literally going after one another and that it was just like me being in there refing an MMA match where these guys were trying to beat one another up. And I literally just in, in just threw myself into the match because I those guys did such a great job at doing what they were doing that I literally lost myself in that match as if they were really fighting one another. Now, as your career progressed in the WWE, uh, one of your big feuds was, of course, with uh, the man known as The Rock, Rocky Maivia, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. You guys had a couple big matches at WrestleMania 14 and King of the Ring uh, 1998. Uh, what were your initial impressions of The Rock during that time period, and, and did you ever imagine he'd become just one of the biggest stars in the world? Well, when I first started working with him, I knew he was trying to find his voice um, and his and his skills in the ring. He hadn't been able to kind of like be himself because I know he was he was put in with the nation, and I thought it it really it, it, it almost it almost pushed him downward because he wasn't able to be who he was. And I think the minute they took him out of the nation, the minute they gave him the mic, is when he started to blossom. And that was during the time me and him started to work these angles together. And I literally, while we were having matches, saw me and him literally rise to the top of this this big world called the WWF. We were literally, uh, our matches were second to nobody. I mean, we were right there with the Stone Coles and the Shawn Michaels and the Undertakers. And we had just started working together and we started putting these great matches together and and I thought we, for both of us, I thought it really made our careers to, to be where we are today. Now, I remember that match at WrestleMania 14, and the uh, the Rock and the Nation had, like, hit you with a chair. And I hated, I could not hate The Rock anymore at this time. And I, I just wanted to see you beat The Rock up so badly. And then you beat The Rock up, you, you made him submit, and then, uh, because you just sort of destroying everything in sight, it was ruled as uh, disqualification, so you didn't win the Intercontinental title. 
So I'm just curious, how was that pitched to you at the time, and did you like the idea, or were you upset? Did you feel like you were getting held back there, or did you like the idea that maybe this pushes Ken Shamrock forward more to see, like, you, you just snap and lose control? I'm, I'm curious how you saw it at the time, because at the time, me, I want I was, like, throwing chairs around when it was rolled to disqualification. Well, for me, I thought, uh, if you looked at it from a fan standpoint, other than not getting the, the, the gold, uh, I thought that um, I looked more dominant. I thought I destroyed him. I thought that I was the better wrestler in that ring. And I think at the end of it, it showed that The Rock couldn't hold a candle to me when it came to me destroying everything around me. I had already beat him. I destroyed everything around me. I took a chair to the face. I did everything uh, and took everything, and and I was still the one that was aggressive. So for me, I loved the angle and how they were pushing it uh, because I know where they were going with it. Rock was going to move up. He was going to challenge for the belt. Um, You know, they were going to drop the strap to me, uh, you know, Connell's strap to me, but they couldn't let Rock lose to me because uh, at least to my knowledge I, I thought the angle was that I was going to go up uh, after carrying the intercontinental strap for a while I would move up and then I would have feuds with Stone Cold, Bret Hart and The Rock Now another big feud you had that summer was with uh, the late Owen Hart and uh, it culminated in SummerSlam 1998 where you two had that it, it was a very unique match which we never really saw again. It was called the Lion's Den match, very appropriately, being against you, Ken Shamrock, of the Lion's Den. Uh, It was almost sort of like an octagon-like structure, and I don't think many wrestlers other than you and Owen Hart could have made that match work as well as it did. What are your recollections of that match at the time, and did you like working with Owen? Owen was a tremendous hand. He was another great worker. I remember when we did the uh, the dungeon match when uh, Severn repped it and we were down in the dungeon, Stu Hart's dungeon, put my head through the ceiling and then, uh, you know, put me into a wall seven times. And then I threw him, suplexed him onto the floor, and hit him with a weight, just all these different things. And I, I figured uh, then when we did the, the uh, Lions Den match, um, that was another uh, another match where you had to have a certain individual that was able to probably take a little bit more uh, of a beating and, and a little bit more aggressive and rough because you didn't have the ropes to bounce off. You didn't have the, to be able to slide out and walk around the apron for a while or be on the floor. So everything had to be done within that, in that, in that cage. And so with me and Owen Hart, I felt really comfortable being able to put together a, almost a shoot style match uh, in the dungeon and also in the lion's den cage. And I thought both those uh, at least in my opinion, both those matches are way, way underrated and not shown enough. Now, I was always curious how you felt toward the end of your run in uh, WWE at the time. You know, you'd had runs with the Intercontinental title, with the tag team titles. Uh, I remember you had one match on TV with Stone Cold Steve Austin. Did you ever get the sense that maybe you would hit a ceiling and it was time for you to move on? Or, or did you feel like you weren't getting to the level you wanted to be? Yeah, I thought there was a time where we were spinning wheels, and I think a lot of it had to do with the, uh, the the screw job that happened to Bret Hart. And I think anybody that was connected to Bret or was around Bret, um, I, I don't know what it was, but, but um, I think that we were all kind of being challenged uh, to see who we were loyal to. Uh, and so everything slowed down at that time, and, and uh, 
there was nobody really moving up fast that had anything to do. And Brett was the guy that really brought me in and helped me and worked with me when I first came in. And so uh, my loyalty definitely was to him. But overall, my loyalty was also to my job, which was the WWF. Was it to Vince and it wasn't to Pat Patterson and it wasn't to, to uh, you know, J- uh, Jim Ross. It wasn't to really anybody, not even to Brett. It was more loyal to my job, doing a good job. But because of the way things looked and how they all played out, Brett was the guy that I had always gone to for advice or to, you know, help out in different matters and stuff like that. And and, uh, and then when that screw job happened, I happened to, uh, you know, kind of say, hey, dude, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, I, I don't know what happened. But and I was hanging out with them and along with the, 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 the hearts. And I think I just kind of got pulled into that group. Uh, by by just the associate associate right just being associated there's uh, and uh, so it just didn't work out well for me at that time I didn't I'm not sure if that went behind the scenes I don't know what everybody was thinking but I knew that it slowed down at that time and I wasn't sure what direction they were going with me and so there was some decisions to make there was a lot of other things that were involved with my decision to leave um, so, and it, and it was all, uh, some of it was personal, some of it was business. So, uh, yeah, so it was like one of those times where I realized like I had to make a decision. And so I tried to make the best one for my family. Do you think Vince McMahon still holds a grudge against you for, for when you left the company in 1999? I would hope not. I mean, I've seen Vince, uh, with a lot of people, uh, that have screwed him over and, and even taken him to court and sued him. And yet he's brought him back for, for um, you know, the, that, that glory walk. Um, and he's yep. been able to forgive a lot of people. Uh, Jeff if Jarrett. If, if, it may, yeah, if it makes sense and it makes money, Vince is all about that. It's business. Right. Uh, so I would hope um, that, that that wouldn't be the case. But, man, the way things are working out, it sure doesn't look good. I mean, I feel like, you know, you've, you've been – you fought in the UFC – you fought. You wrestled in WWE. I feel like you know a thing or two about guys that hold grudges and bosses that hold grudges. Do you think Vince is the type to hold a grudge, maybe in the long term, but maybe not forever? I don't. I don't think Vince holds grudges at all. I think that even okay. if he does hold a grudge against somebody, if it's going to make him money, he'll put that grudge aside. Right. I, I, I truly believe that. I think Vince is about money. I think he's about business. What's good for business? If uh, if it's a personal grudge, put it aside. Let's make money. I I believe that. That's what I believe. Um, and uh, and I and I'll continue to keep believing that. I know that the way things are kind of playing out and laying out, it doesn't look good that that's the mm-hmm. case, but. There's, there's a whole lot of other things it can be, too. So, uh, I'm not, I, like I said, I don't have enough information to really uh, make a stand on right. anything on that. So Now, if you were to ask me, Ken, I think you definitely belong in the WWE Hall of Fame for all of your contributions and everything you've done for the business. Um, I think, ultimately, though, you know, a lot of people debate about the WWE Hall of Fame a lot, but, I mean, I feel like it's only a matter of time. For everybody, and and the other thing is, you can't induct everyone every year. Um, do do you have the feeling like maybe it's only a matter of time for me as as well? Like I'll get my due at some point. No, there's no doubt that I'll get in. I just it may be when I'm you know seventy seventy five <laughs> years old, but I see a lot of guys who've been there before me and had done a lot for the WWF, and they had to wait right. 15, 20, 30 years. So I get it. I understand it. So. Um, 
you know, it, to me, it, it doesn't matter when. Uh, just as I feel I do belong in there, I feel I've done enough. So um, when that time comes, I'll be very happy and, and very, very, very happy. Yes. I think even if it's 70 or 75 for you, Ken, you'll, you'll be like the, the most dangerous 75-year-old on the planet. <laughs> right, I hope so. Uh, I, but preferably not that long, but... Right. Now, now go, I think you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but Jim, when Jim Ross talked about you, one thing he, he did um, say that stood out to me a lot was people believed you were real because you damn sure were real. Um, what do you think about that and just sort of building that as part of your character uh, in pro wrestling? I think that's exactly what I did when I talked with Bret Hart. And Bret Hart said, Don't, I brought you in because you're the world's most dangerous man. You were a badass. Like you were the world's most dangerous badass in the world. When you walk in that ring, don't let anybody make you do spots that is pro wrestling. You do the things that you do and let them work around you. They'll do pro wrestling. You be the badass. And so when he told me that and we, and we worked through some different uh, wrestling situations, uh, it really helped me understand that uh, going into pro wrestling that this is who I have to be. I can't be going in there and doing leapfrogs and drop kicks. You know, um, I could add into hurricanas and I can add in some belly to bellies, different things that are more athletic and more real uh, because that's who I was. I was not a pro wrestler. I was a fighter. And so going in with that attitude, I definitely kept that attitude and those skills walking into pro wrestling. Now, going into the MMA side of things, MMA has changed a lot uh, in the last 25 years. You were you got to fight in the days when there were no time limits, uh, there were a lot less rules and regulations, uh, now there are gloves, weight limits, weight classes, uh, there, there are rounds... All the all these it's changed a lot, and you've and you've gotten to be a part of that as well. What is it like for you to be a part of these different eras of the sport and, and the way it's changed? Where um, I remember back in the nineties, I don't even think I remember the term MMA. I, I think they called it no holds barred, or they called it ultimate fighting. Really, so what's it like to kind of see those changes over the course of the decades? Well, first of all, it gives me a lot more uh, information and. And, and I am also um, a, an, uh, an expert on the danger of the experience between full-ounce gloves and bare-knuckle. And so for me to be able to have been a part of the three or four generations of that, being able to see the advancements in the rules and the different things that they've done, quote-unquote, to make it safer, it's funny, too, because as a fighter, when you look at it and they – and they basically came in. I mean, it's funny because Tank Abbott, Tank Abbott introduced the gloves, the MMA gloves, the four ounce gloves. And nowadays, they basically say, "Well, yeah, we we put those four ounce gloves because we want to make sure that we protect the, the fighters." And I laugh too because I, if you ask Tank Abbott why he put gloves on, he would tell you because he did. He was tired of getting his hands broke or his hands hurting, so he put it on there so he could hit the guys harder and not hurt his hand. But yeah, they turned around and they sold a bill of goods of saying, oh, yeah, by the way, we're going to put these four-ounce gloves on you guys to protect the fighters. And the reality of it is was that they wanted to protect the guys that were winning the fights 
because <laughs> that's where the marketing dollars are going, and they're they're, they're going to make their money. So basically, do do you think the whole four ounce gloves thing is is it just a facade then? Oh, absolutely. There's Interesting. No shadow. Listen, there is nothing, nothing in in any kind of scientific way that will explain the, the four ounce gloves being safer than bare knuckle. It is absolutely crazy that people are truly buying into that because if you were to hang a bowling ball on a chain and swing it and tell somebody to punch it with no gloves on, they would look at you like you were crazy. Like, what? You want me to hit that? And yet you put a boxing glove on them or an MMA glove on it and just tell them, hey, hit that bowling ball. And they're like, okay. And they hit it, right? But it's no different than when you're punching somebody in the head. You have a, a, an inch, a square inch from your cheekbones to your nose to your chin, a square inch that you're able to punch somebody. Now, when you swing that bowling ball and you tell them to hit within that square inch, how many times do you think when that thing's moving, they're able to hit you in that square? Probably not very many times. And here's the, here's the punchline. If you miss that square inch, which is the sweet spot on the face, then you break your hand because you missed the soft spot. And that, to me, right there, is what's being sold to the public. And it isn't for safety. It's for money. It's for marketing dollars. They do not want guys like Chuck Liddell and Tank Abbott and all these other guys that were strikers to break their hands. They want to keep the hands protected so they keep bringing them back so they can keep fighting because the public loves them. has nothing to do with safety. Now, do you think on any level the sport has become safer for the fighters, or is that all a, a, a bill of goods, as you would say? Uh, I think that they truly are wanting to make the fighters safe, right? There's no right. question because they're stopping fights when guys get pummeled, which is another way of being able to protect them since now they have these four-ounce gloves on them and they're taping their hands underneath so that they're taking this hand with a rock on it and they're able to punch these guys in the head a hundred times without hurting their hand. So now they're basically got referees going there going, okay, if this guy gets hit four or five times hard, I'm going to stop the fight. Whereas if they did that without the gloves on, they would probably break their hand and they would, they would be stopping the fight for another reason. But they are, are trying to protect the fighters. That's why they're going in and able to make sure that if guys are not responding uh, in a professional way, being able to protect themselves, and they will stop the fight. So I don't think that they're going, oh, yeah, we're going to put the gloves on because we want to see guys get hurt. No, they're putting the gloves on guys, four-ounce gloves on guys, so that, yeah, they can still keep their guys that are winning still there, but the referees are able to protect the fighters that are getting punched by stopping the fight so they don't take too much punishment. Uh, now, I mean, the other the other thing is, we know a lot more about CTE and brain trauma now, and you know it is a combat sport. But but I I also hope you know they're keeping an eye on that, um, and just checking on those things with the athletic commissions and and head clinics and whatnot. Does it really? And here's a question I mean, on that. Yeah. Right. Listen. Here's a question on that. When you're talking about your brain being in fluid inside your right. head, right? Someone takes a fist, a bare knuckle fist, right? And he punches you in the face. 
and he hits you in the jaw and he breaks your jaw or he breaks your nose or you get a cut, laceration, blood everywhere. And he punches you five, six, seven times, right? As opposed to now here, now putting a glove on someone, whether it's a 16-ounce glove or a four-ounce glove, and now I take that same thing as opposed to five to ten punches, and I punch you 40 to 50 to 60 times in the head, all over your head, because I won't hurt my hand, so I can hit you in the forehead, the back of the head, the side of the head, anywhere I want, multiple, multiple times over and over again. Is it more dangerous getting hit 15 to 16 times with a broken bone and cuts and blood? Or is it more dangerous getting hit 100 times in a fight? Which one is more dangerous? I'm not talking about short now, term, yeah. but long term. Now, in the long term, now again, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a, a head trauma specialist, but based on what you put forth, I, I would assume, you know, in these cases, it's that repeated head trauma and the brain getting knocked around the skull that will probably cause more trauma. As, as well, you here's it. another one, too, when you talk about, and this is something that most people don't realize except for people that are involved in soccer. But you realize that there are soccer players who have traumatic brain damage because they are heading the ball so many times throughout their career that they have brain damage? I mean... And that's not... And it, that's really soft. Wouldn't surprise me. So, I mean... In other words, it doesn't really take a whole lot to cause that sort of concussive force. No, because all it is, and this is the key, and I think any doctor will tell you this, it's the repeated blows that you take to the head that causes the brain to bounce off inside of your head multiple times. Right. Now, I'm not looking to cause any drama with you. But the last time I read it, it sounded like you you and Dana White were on good terms again. Would you say you and Dana White are on, on good terms now? But, you know, I know sometimes one day, uh, Dana White, it seems like you could be his best friend, and then the next, it's like you're his worst enemy, and it's it's scorched earth. But I'm curious, uh, how, are, how are things now between you two? No, I, I, I try to... Um stay out of the weeds with Dana. I mean, Dana, Dana has his, his thing. Uh, no one can take away what Dana has done. Right. I mean, you cannot discredit what he's done. He's done something tremendous. He gave a lot of people opportunity to fight, but I also know that he uses that against people because he's done those things. And the one thing I think bothers me the most is when he starts speaking on things that he has no idea about, because what he'll do is he'll talk about how this fight should have done this or the fight's done that, or that bare knuckle is just ugly and, and more dangerous. And yet he's not fought in either one of them. And so then when someone does speak up about bare knuckle or someone does speak up about uh, four ounce gloves and they talk about their experiences in the ring because they've been through it, he basically calls them trash. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. But I do, even though he's never fought in it. And the other guy has. So will you be uh, will you be getting in the ring for Battle Championship Wrestling coming up? Yes, I will. Uh, I'm going to be down there, and I will be... Uh, actually, it's the third week of August. I'll be down in Australia uh, defending our tag team titles. All right. And uh, who, who will you be teaming with? 
Oh, Carlos Cannon, man. We're going to be going out there. We've defended it three times already. Actually, more than that because we've done a couple matches in one night. But we've defended our title, and um, and I don't think there's going to be anything less than that this time. And how are you feeling just uh, staying active and continue working right now? Man, I feel strong. I feel great. My body's responding really well. It feels like clock's going backwards for me. I feel I feel much better than I did when I was at the end of my career in MMA. I just felt I was burned out. I hadn't really gave my body a chance to really recover and heal because I was always training. So now that I got, uh, I took basically a year off doing zero. And then I got back into working out and training. I started feeling good again. I jumped back in the ring again. I felt tremendous. And then so I continued on with my working out, continued on with being in the ring. And I just feel really good. I know when you're an athlete, recovery is so important. So, I mean, considering you worked uh, a full-time WWE schedule, I, I imagine that can be a bit of a, a grind. So how important is that recovery process, you know, when, when you're, you know, when this is like your body and, and your athleticism is such a huge asset for your career? Yeah, it's a big deal. I mean, um, it's the, it, it's really about being able to perform at a high level and because your brain doesn't work if your body's not functioning you're not getting blood flow you're in a bus your your muscles are not growing they're actually decreasing uh diet's important i mean so all those things uh is very important um especially for an athlete and even more so when you start getting into your late in your 40s and 50s and 60s that that rest and that diet and that training really becomes so much more important because you lose it so fast. And if you, especially with me and having injuries and all that stuff, um, having that muscle around those injuries keeps me at a, at a very high level in my performances because I keep that muscle strong around the injury areas. Now, also, uh, I briefly talked to you at StarCast about this, but you, you said that Brock Lesnar does deserve a slot in the UFC Hall of Fame because he made an impact. And and uh, what do you think about that? Absolutely. I mean, uh, listen, you can't talk about the UFC without mentioning Brock's name when it comes to the heavyweight division. I mean, he's done enough. I don't care whether you like him or not. The guy did what he needed to do, and and he was a name there, and he was a force there. And so no matter even if he hadn't been there that long, the time that he was there, uh, he made an impact. He 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 literally changed the way people had to fight uh, in order to beat him. So uh, there's no question he deserves to go in. There's no question in my mind. Now, I mean, you're 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 a former champion in the WWE. You're a UFC Hall of Famer, a former champion in the UFC. Lesnar, he's still like the he's still on top of the WWE. He's the Universal Champion right now. Do you think there's anything fighters or aspiring wrestlers can learn from him or, or take away from what? you know, what he's done in the aura he puts off? Well, I, it, it, I mean, it's hard to say because uh, Brock isn't the most friendliest person in the world. It's not like he's trying to do it on purpose. I think that's just who he is. Mm -hmm. Like, he just doesn't really want to be around people. And it's not that he intentionally wants to be mean to people. He's just not a people person. And I think if you have that kind of character and stuff like that, just, you know, look at what he does. He tries to keep himself out of those situations that would get him in trouble, which is talking to the media, overexposing himself so that they're able to dig into him and get him to mess up because he doesn't want to be around the public. So there's just a lot of things you look at where he really shields himself off from trouble. Uh, just a couple more things, Ken, and then I'll let you go. Uh, any plans uh, to, to uh, partner up with uh, Josh Barnett 
in uh, Bloodsport Wrestling and maybe maybe come over here and wrestle Frank Mir in Bloodsport or Josh yeah, Barnett. Know, listen, man, I'm in physically fit to jump in and do whatever it is that's interesting to me. And so if that was to happen, I would definitely take a look at it and see where we would go with it. So, like I said, anything for me right now uh, is definitely open. Would you would you think you you and uh, Frank Mir could have a fun match considering you know your backgrounds and he's it looks like he's uh, experimenting in pro wrestling now and so is uh, Cain Velasquez for that matter he's he's going to make his pro wrestling debut soon. Yeah, I think um, all those guys, man. I mean, they were world champions. Those guys are definitely great athletes, and if they're a great athlete, I think they can transition in whatever they want because it takes hard work to be able to be at that 1% level, which is being the best in the world. And if you can do that and you set your mind to something else that you want to do, if you literally put your mind into it and you work at it, these guys can achieve whatever they want. All right, so let's do it. Ken Shamrock versus Josh Barnett versus Frank Mir versus Cain Velasquez. Those are all matches we want to see, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Ken Shamrock wins by an ankle lock. Exactly. All right, and just last thing, Ken, uh, any shout-outs, uh, any pl- any plugs uh, where fans can uh, follow you or find you on social media or, any- or anything uh, you have coming up you'd like to share, uh, please feel free to share it with us. Yeah, for sure. You know, man, um, you can go to my website, KenShamrock.com. I also have a Twitter, at ShamrockKen, where I do a lot of my talking. Uh, come check that out. we got a lot of great stuff coming up. Uh, also, too, uh, ValorBK.com. You people that are out there listening that, that love to be able to watch fighting and bare-knuckle fighting, ValorBK.com, September 21st, North Dakota. Come check that out, man, because we are going to do a fight. So if you want to learn more about it, go to ValorBK.com and uh, check out our website. Uh, Ken, this has been fantastic. Just thank you so much for uh, dedicating all this time to speaking with us. This has been amazing. I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks and uh, best of luck to all your current projects. And I uh, can't wait to see what you do next, man. So thank you. Well, yeah, and also, too, I also want to um, talk oh, yeah. a little about our, our event that we do have coming up. Oh, yeah, it's go ahead. Be in North Dakota. It'll be in North Dakota. And if you want to check it out, it's ValorBK.com. Um, and our tickets will go on sale six weeks out if you're interested in doing that. And we're also looking for people that want to get involved with sponsorship. This is a, a an event that is up and coming, and I think it's going to take off. Uh, we also have Fight Globe as our international distribution. So we're not doing this thing small. We're doing this thing big. So if you're interested, uh, no matter what it is, a fighter, a referee, whatever it is, a, a sponsorship, go to ValorBK.com, man. We'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Looking forward to it. This is Jeffrey Harris, and you've been listening to the living legend, the UFC Hall of Famer, Ken Shamrock, on the 411 Wrestling Interviews Podcast. Thank you, everybody.